G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Research Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return, but incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast, Acast, or uh, Google, I think are doing po- um, uh, podcast providers now as well, and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, and we'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time and leave us a review. So, um, joining Brian and myself in the studio today, we're going to talk to Dr. Tierney Kinnison, um, and we know that you're very busy, so thank you very much for your time, Tierney. You're welcome. <clears throat> so, uh, so Kinney, you're one of our, uh, obviously, uh, um, lecturers in veterinary education, but you've been here for the same length of time as me, so 2008, <laughs> uh, which is which is quite a while, isn't it? Um, Institutionalised was the was the word that you said when the mics were, were closed. <laughs> so, um, so maybe it would be okay to sort of explain about uh, um, how, how you got into that position please yeah absolutely yeah. you can make it as long as short as you like <laughs> i'll probably make it very long because it's uh, as i said to you earlier it's a sort of a path that i had never anticipated so it's one that took multiple turns and and i was never quite sure where it was going but in in many ways that's been such a lovely part of 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 life um so my my undergraduates were um animal behavior and then i did the same as a master's so within that i sort of got into enjoying research but um, had never sort of realised that there was a career out there where you could just really do research. Um, and so I finished my master's and didn't really know what to go into, to be honest. It was it was one of those I'd had a fantastic few years studying that subject, but didn't sort of know where it was going to lead. Um, so did did a bit of a, a short-term job in a veterinary practice, it's like an animal carer, and was loving that. Always knew that, you know, sort of wanted to be involved with, with animals in some way. So either directly or indirectly wanted to sort of have a job that revolved around helping animals, as it were. And so while I was doing that job, I was sort of looking elsewhere and thinking, you know, what, what might I go into? I'm not really sure. And, and it just so happened that I found a research assistant post here at RVC. And it was in veterinary education at the Live Centre, which is our lifelong um, independent veterinary education centre. And applied for it, having sort of no massive anticipation that I would get it, but um, really clicked with the team here, I think, really you know, felt that they were such an interesting sort of group to come and work with and, and eventually was offered the job, obviously, because I'm sat here right now. Um, so that was a one-year post, and it was one of those things that then spiralled into four and a half years later and I was still doing it, which was, which was really incredible. It, it wasn't necessarily easy because it was a one-year post and then it was additional short-term contracts so it was like you know you might have a nine month or another year or something like that so it was a time that was quite in some ways chaotic and you never quite knew still where you were going but because I was working on such amazing projects with such amazing people uh, and developing all sorts of different skills you know in, in, in veterinary education that it was really sort of fantastic so so that was my sort of first four and a half years uh, at which point you know, sort of my my mentor at the time was leaving and I came to this decision of, you know, do I go as well? Do I stay? Do I leave education and research entirely or, or what do I do? And I thought, well, you know, sort of why not do a PhD? So worked with um, another mentor, Professor Stephen May, uh, and we developed a, an idea for a PhD, which is around interprofessional education, which we'll probably talk about a lot more in a bit. Um, and so did the PhD for three years. Then 
again, as I, as I always sort of say, refused to leave the RVC and, and managed to get a one-year postdoc, still in live, doing all sorts of different education research again. Took a little bit of a, of a curve and went to work for um, our um, veterinary epidemiology, economics and public health group and did sort of a, a more slightly um, clinical but, but a people's perception of disease kind of postdoc for two years. And then ended up getting a, a lectureship in veterinary education, which is absolutely fantastic. So I've been in that for the last sort of year and a half, I guess. So, so yeah, from research assistant to PhD to postdoc to lecture all at RVC <laughs> for the last few years. Well, well, well done, well done. <laughs> um, and uh, and so, so you sort of briefly touched on it, so your your interest in research was like sort of peaked doing a master's, but but obviously you, you applied for the master's, and what, what was the motivation behind that? Was there questions that you wanted answered, or was there was research something that you thought about as an undergraduate? I'm going to be totally honest with you, not even slightly. It was it was one of those, of, the topic was so interesting, and, and I guess there, there were questions, but it wasn't that I had a specific question I wanted to go ahead a, a, and research. That that very much developed more throughout the, the Masters, actually. Um, and so it was a case of, this is really interesting, I'm loving learning, I think, more than more than anything else. So I kept doing it and then throughout the Masters obviously having a chance to do a research project which was a little bit more your own and you could sort of design it a little bit and, and I found it at that point really probably that I quite enjoy writing or I really enjoy writing so I think that's that's probably quite a benefit for a researcher because if you want to be getting an output at the end of it it's often in terms of writing some kind of publication or report or something like that so that that whole um, research process, designing, conducting, and writing, is is actually all became something I enjoyed. Um, but no, even at that point, I didn't know that research would be something I wanted to specifically go into. <laughs> and when and when you were a research assistant, so when you took on mm. that role, were you were you asked to to help like writing? Were you, were you um, you know did you offer that as something that you enjoy or encouraged to do, or was it just doing specific? I suppose like research parts of, of the project or was it a bit of bit of everything in some ways it was a bit of everything so as so as a research assistant sometimes you would end up maybe just doing sort of data analysis or that kind of part of a project and being you know one sort of person within a bigger team uh, and and that was perfectly fun and, and brilliant as well but but my um my sort of line manager at the time who was um, professor sarah bailey was really really influential in, in helping me in all stages so she would involve me in in starting to write grant applications from the early days uh, you know in designing all of the uh, research that we were doing and and then obviously doing the conducting and the data analysis and then writing as well and you know I don't necessarily think I was a natural writer but um, I think she really got me into the fact that putting words on a page and then and then editing them and then getting them out there is actually what we want I think was some, one some, something that she instilled in me was that research is fantastic if it's interesting but really it's great if you can make a difference to someone by doing it so so to do that you end up having to get it out there so that people can see it so um, absolutely yeah. and did you find was it was it quite a difficult um time in some aspects because if you have a year post or and that maybe extended by a year was, was that always sort of hanging over you like what am i what am i doing or is that is that just part of a research assistant's life that you accept oh i think it's a little bit of both i've got to admit it is tough i really do think it is tough and, and you know if 
you know, if it was kind of advice to someone going down this route, I would definitely say do it and try it because it's a fantastic way, being a research assistant or a postdoc, to sort of almost get your foot in the door somewhere and meet fantastic people and then be able to write your own grants and things like that. But actually, it's a super tough life. And, and I was massively lucky if, you know, I was living at home at the time. I was still quite young. Um, and so I wasn't worried about where I was living or, you know, can I pay the rent or anything? So it was OK to have these six months, nine months um, contracts. But actually, it's it's a pretty tough way of going. And, and you know, so I ended up doing two postdocs as well. And even at that point, you're you're you know you get halfway through your one year postdoc and you're suddenly like oh okay so what's out there now and you're applying for grants and hoping that they're going to happen but might not um so i think you know you you do have to be aware that that kind of life is tough if you're going to try and do that forever uh, and so certainly moving towards this lectureship position was definitely something that i i understood that i wanted and, I, and i'm very lucky as i said to you earlier that because my my teaching my education and my research are so linked they are kind of one and the same that, that I don't feel I've lost my research or anything by becoming a lecturer and I, and I wonder if if you know people go into being a lecturer because they want to research and they have to teach but actually I mean I'm hoping they want to teach as well as a, as a lecturer in veterinary education uh, but for me it's ever so nice because they're they're so very much linked yeah Okay, and and you sort of wrote your own proposal for for your your PhD, and mm. so did that come from your experiences in in that like previous sort of four and a half years of, of working in the in the team, and and uh, and so what what did you actually look at in the interprofessional um, way? Yeah, um, it very much came from the uh, from the research assistant work. So one of the one of the projects that I was working on uh, in, as the RA in the first four and a half years was um, developing two interprofessional education interventions that we brought to the RVC. So interprofessional education is when we're bringing two or more professions together. Uh, the, the formal definition is to to learn with, from, and about each other in order to improve collaboration and the quality of care. So for us, that's that's hugely important, and we're massively lucky here at RBC because we have vets and we have veterinary nursing students both here on the same campus, often at the same time. So we we really are able to make use of of that idea of interprofessional education uh, for the benefit, as it says, of the team members, but ultimately for the benefit of our clients and our patients as well. Um, so one of the projects, as I said, was to start to develop two initiatives to to do this, and realistically, it hadn't been done pretty much at all. We 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 very much historically have taught the two groups in silos as, as we term it that you know they're, they're pretty much separate they don't necessarily even know each other exists in some ways which is actually really quite sad um so what we've started to do with that project is is develop these a couple of initiatives um so one of my uh, research papers in the ra work was to to sort of evaluate these two um so and that was again one of the ones that i had quite a lot of control over even as a research assistant so i was researching what type of teaching intervention we might want to do and a lot of it um so it's come from aviation originally sort of the the crew resource management in aviation and then medicine has started to develop quite a lot as well and, and then we're now obviously taking up the baton and, and doing our, our own as well but so we adapted a couple of sort of medical ideas um and then worked them into working in, in our veterinary field so that was our, our one of our as i say my papers from my RA work and that very much sparked the interest of hang on this is a massive thing that we're just not doing and we're in such a perfect position to be able to do this and I had worked as I said in a, in a cat 
um, sort of veterinary clinic as a receptionist for a little while. And and you know this veterinary team involves your vets, your nurses, your receptionists, your admins, etc. And, and you need that teamwork to to be able to give the kind of care that we really want um, to our clients and our patients. So that ultimately led to the idea of actually maybe we need to take a step back because we were designing education initiatives but we hadn't sort of understood the problem as it were first off so the phd tried to take a step back and it looked at interprofessional interactions in real veterinary practices um, and so yeah so that the whole of the plan did did come from my previous my previous working in in live yeah so you, and, and what specifically about those sort of interactions did you did you look at how they work as a as a team or how they get things done or just the different tasks that people do or, so it, it was a, well it was a bit of a mix so i'm i'm a massive um sort of proponent of, of mixed methods at the moment I, I i mean where it's appropriate so if you have a question you know i often think it can't necessarily be answered purely by numbers but it also can't necessarily be answered purely by sort of the more social sciencey sort of wordsy type um methods so, so my phd was was very mixed methods we started out purely quantitative purely sort of scientific numbers based um but through um a questionnaire we use social network analysis that people might be familiar with if sort of transmission of disease can sometimes be measured by social network analysis but you can also measure transfer of information for example via different people um, so the first the first part of the phd was to map interactions between vets nurses receptionists and admins using this social network analysis within um, a few different um, veterinary practices in the uk so we looked at things like who do you get information from who would you go to advice um, for who do you problem solve with who sort of influences your behaviour and who do you socialise with because we thought that might be a, an interesting little added thing which it did turn out to be actually quite interesting in the end um, so yes we did very much collected all that data and so people would, would tick boxes of you know who have you got information from within the last however many weeks or something so you'd end up with masses and masses of quantitative number data um, which then you can analyse with some really cool statistics and make some beautiful graphs of, of how these interactions and how information flows within a team and you can find some interesting things like for example um, if you have one practice but it have different branches quite often you get sort of isolated little groups in the branches so you might think that you're one practice sharing best practice within the whole group but actually your branches are, are a limit because of the distance. For example, people don't necessarily work between branches. And like that, professions sometimes, information doesn't always go between professions the way you think. And there was still some, what you might think of as, as sort of hierarchical uh, sort of behaviour. So a nurse would ask a vet for advice, but the vet wouldn't necessarily ask that same nurse for advice. That kind of thing was, you know, we were able to pick up on. So having said all of that, we then wanted to do more more social sciences, and so we did observations and interviews. Well, I did observations and interviews uh, in a couple of veterinary practices. Um, so we spent sort of like, you know a good three weeks in each of the practices and really just sort of you know got to know the people there and took masses and masses and masses of field notes writing all the time you know what was happening what was going on and then did interviews with different members of the different um, professions and occupations and sort of analysed that together to try and understand these interactions and, and we picked two really good veterinary practices our whole point was that we wanted to 
to explore what makes a really good veterinary team. So things like, you know, you, you might expect it, but things like trust and respect and, and appreciating different people's opinions and being willing to go to the person with the most experience rather than whatever profession they might happen to be in. And that kind of thing w w ended up being really important. Um, the social one was, was fun as well because there was a link between who you're social with outside of work and who you ask for advice, for example. Um, so we're not entirely sure of causality. It could be that you become friends with the people that offer good advice or that you only go to people for advice if you're already friends with them. But, you know, that can have huge implications for who you're actually willing to go and talk to in a, in a, in a practice. So we'd like to do more on that kind of thing, hopefully, in future. Um, but so, yeah, so so ultimately we, we did able to paint a nice picture of, of what makes a good veterinary practice team. Um, one of the things that, that came out that we didn't necessarily look for was the idea of um, interprofessional errors. So even in fantastic veterinary teams, you know, mistakes, little tiny mistakes are bound to happen if you're there for a long enough period. And so it was quite interesting we started to research, you know, what are the interprofessional aspects that, that actually could lead to this. Because being an interprofessional team has massive benefits. You're able to be, in many ways, better than you would be on your own. You've got different heads with different opinions offering different advice, uh, and that's fantastic. But in some ways, it, it also offers a, a, an additional challenge because you're dealing with people who you might not necessarily completely understand their motivations or their reasoning, and that kind of thing can then affect your, your teamwork more than just working in a team of people that, that are exactly the same as you, for example. So. So that's kind of, yeah, the, the three-year PhD and big case study um, within a couple of minutes. <laughs> wow. So, so um, what, what did you, what do you think were the, were the key things that you, you like, took from that? As in, maybe in more of the, you know, the key things maybe from your study, but also as you as a, as a researcher? I think me as a researcher, you know, certainly... That was that was the first time I'd ever gone somewhere and done observational studies, and that that's probably quite um, you know weird for for many scientists who, who might be based more in labs, um, and and it was as I say nothing I'd done before um, either with with people I'd observed animals in terms of animal behaviour, but hadn't sort of been sat there observing people, and that was such a fun and and really interesting way to go about research. So I think it broadened my understanding of what. Um, what mixed methods or, or what social science research could be because you always think of sort of oh yeah you could interview someone or do a questionnaire kind of thing but but the observational thing was was really massive and, and haven't had chance to do it again because it takes time so much time but it's definitely something that, that I would like like to do again and in terms of the key findings I think you know the the project was able to show you know what does lead to a good team but also what are the challenges and from that what we really want to develop then is using those kind of understandings to develop interprofessional education that is actually going to make a difference to our students and where, where do you and so um so following on from your phd so it's been the last sort of five years what what have you where have you gone with that uh, interprofessional work so uh, really uh, brilliantly at the RVC, we've got a fantastic group of, of people, uh, in staff and students. So we, we now have uh, an interprofessional education team, uh, which is a group of staff who are developing and running interprofessional education initiatives um, and evaluating as well. So, for example, we, we have people working on things like euthanasia or dentistry or um, rabbit husbandry, all sorts of different topics that, that can be applied for, for interprofessional education. Um, and we're also seeing 
super lucky that we have a student group, the Interprofessional Education Club, uh, and they are a student union group who, who came to us and said, you know, we really want more of this, which is just such a lovely thing to know that actually you're, you're doing something that, that they do really appreciate. And so they've been amazing in, in initiating their own IPE events, uh, and they've done loads. They've done things like anaesthesia, bandaging, parasitology. They've been really, really proactive, which has been great. So it's still slow going because to implement something like interprofessional education is really quite challenging, especially so we're lucky that we have both vets and nurses here in terms of students but uh, for example we've got different group sizes so lots and lots of vets a smaller number of nurses the nurses necessarily aren't always on campus at the same time as the vets so there's lots of logistical things that actually make your progress somehow challenging um so we're doing a lot more now and as i say you know not that long ago this wasn't done at all so we're, we're really super proud of, of what especially what our students have been able to do recently i mentioned within the curriculum of the of this of the courses themselves yeah. it's probably difficult to yeah. to shave off time where both can exactly. can join right yeah. and exactly. so and so is this done more as a um almost volunteer basis as in is it is it actually in the curriculum at the at the moment yeah, so a lot of it is volunteer basis. So certainly, all the student-led stuff is volunteer basis. So, uh, and then we now have we have um, one major part of the professionalism strand. Uh, we have um, actually it's one of the the two educational initiatives that I designed <laughs> all those years ago. It's still stuck around because it's it's really simple, but it's really good. Um, it, it's called Talking Walls. It's very very easy in so much as all you need is a big piece of paper and some um, markers, and and you you get the different groups the vets and the nurses to think about the roles of the other profession for a period of time and then you can swap around the sheet so that the profession can see what the other profession really thinks about them and then you bring them together to discuss misunderstandings any stereotypical views and so on so it's a super simple way for for the two groups to learn about the roles and responsibilities of each other which you know we do sort of talk to them about but it's not necessarily done so explicitly as that so yeah that's that's definitely in the curriculum now and we're working towards more um within the professionalism strands really um as much as we can and and um Jenny, what, what are you currently investigating so we've just recently done um interpod so um a pod in in our terms is a professional orientation and development and jackie cardwell and mandy Demestri specifically have been running that in the veterinary and the nursing degrees but but separately so you know with, with quite a lot of things we then come along and go how about making it interprofessional and so that's we got some funding and that's what we did so we've just recently run the first ever interpod as we're calling it um which is so it's all about enhancing the emotional intelligence of our students but making it interprofessional is really building that within the interprofessional context and a lot of it you know is sort of teamwork ideas and as I said before interprofessionalism just adds that added layer of benefit but that added layer of, of um, you know challenge as well so it's a really nice way to frame the idea of, of teamwork so we've just recently um, done that um, and the project involved so first of all, we validated a, a survey. So there's medical surveys of things like um, how ready for, for interprofessional learning are you? There's quite a few of them out there and they're validated in the medical field, but we had nothing for, for us. So the first part of the project was to validate that study, um, you, you know, confirmatory factor analysis, all that kind of stuff, proper you know, numbers and statistics. So we've got quite a, a mix of the type of research that we do. Um, so we validated our study, uh, our questionnaire, and then used that within the interpod. So the students that came along, 
took part in this one really nice interactive day of activities to get to know each other and to learn more about emotional intelligence. Uh, and then we've just run several focus groups with participants and non-participants to see what their understanding of emotional intelligence and interprofessional working really is. So that's what I'm literally, uh, I've just got the transcripts of the focus groups back yesterday, so it's proper current, um, don't know the results yet, but it's looking like I mean, for starters, the students seem to really enjoy it, which is fantastic. Um, and, and the questionnaire will help us to see how their perceptions have actually maybe changed due to the intervention. Uh, and the focus groups will help us understand, you know, what we can do with this teaching to, to improve it, to carry it on, to make sure it fits in with the curriculum and, and moves forwards in the future. Is it one of those things, Tierney, that is it's really important to uh, to develop for a career and, and to, to to work in that environment but seeing the um i suppose like the time that it takes and also what is in an academic institution uh, i suppose accessible mm. how how does that uh, equate so not so you know obviously it's it's brilliant and you're trying to get these uh um you know, guys and girls to 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 work together um how how they would in a in a, mm. in a you know in an environment in a practical sorry in a work environment mm. but can they see that like the the benefits of that because there's a lot of um i suppose with 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 students in in general it uh, sometimes they get focused on the assessment and assessment driving learning rather mm. than well how is this going to help me it might be fun yeah and and absolutely <laughs> it's it's what it's all about but but it's getting getting them to under understand that i think it's quite a bit of a mix again at the moment so we've definitely we've got such a an amazing core group of, of students that they just get it they really know that realistically once you know once you're out in practice the kind of things that you get complaints for are things like communication skills as everybody knows you know not necessarily specific clinical knowledge about something that might be a bit unusual so it's it's communication not only with with you know your your clients but actually your your teamwork your communication with your your interprofessional colleagues and you know as, as I've said before errors in 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 practice are, are often based on some kind of teamwork you know system failure it's not necessarily one person doesn't know what they're doing or they did something wrong it's there's the there's a whole system behind that that leads up to this one little tiny moment where actually something did go wrong and quite often different groups are involved in that and and I do think a lot of our students completely get that having said that um we don't always get you know 100% turnout as you know sort of no lecture ever does or no activity ever does but there are definitely students that probably think of it as common sense and therefore don't necessarily understand that it's something that you can practice and get better with um, you know, so we, we possibly struggle you know to get 100% buy-in but certainly we've got a really core group of, of students that just they really do get it that being a vet is more or being a nurse is more than clinical knowledge it's it's your whole ability to be a, a cohesive person and is there a way you think you can um roll this out to rather than in a in a almost like a classroom environment to be in a in a clinical environment yeah absolutely um i mean so i think we could do all sorts of different interprofessional education with and one thing you know i'd like to do is sort of work with people in in sort of practices or ems or the, our extramural studies placements our, our rotation placements here at our hospital is to actually sort of work on when the when our students are out on placements which they are a lot of the time is to really get them to 
to think about that teamwork because they're they're probably there you know thinking or you know what's going on with this specific case but actually looking around and what's going on with this specific team is actually a really nice way to to get them to to consider that it's a it's a day it's a part of their daily life it's a massive part of their daily life actually being part of an interprofessional team yeah. It's 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 everything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and just touch on said before when you're talking about your PhD, you sort of about going into um, like good practices or or you wanted to go go there. And one thing I've always struggled with is what makes good. And I know mm. like Richard Mellonby posted like what is a good vet or published that mm. and and looked at, and looked at different sort of stakeholders with that. But how did you look at what was good was that from the perceptions of the people that that work there because because as well like metrics of of outcome you know you can't think good to yeah. they what uh, client satisfaction does that work or you know standards of medicine it all gets very complex very quickly yeah. doesn't yeah. it yeah so i mean we took a, a probably a rather simplistic view which was to use the social network analysis findings so we we wanted to so we did social network analysis as i said with quite a few practices and then we wanted to choose two based on those results so we picked practices that did have a lot of interprofessional interaction actions there were practices that perhaps had less um but because we wanted to study interprofessional interactions and because we believe they are a good thing uh, we chose specifically practices that had you know high numbers of links between their vets and nurses for asking for advice that kind of thing so it was a it was a sort of one-dimensional simple measure of good <laughs> mm, yeah. but but again, it'd be good wouldn't it to have a look at as you, you sort of touched on as well sort of um uh, the mistake sort of aspects mm. of whether in different environments whether mistakes are or near misses are are uh, um, are dealt with before they they escalate rather than in in different environments as well i think i think you've, you've hit the nail on the head actually near misses is, is something i'd love to research because it's yeah like you say something's happened to stop it but people are aware that something was happening yeah. um and, and that's that's so fascinating and and in our interprofessional world you know things like speaking up is a massive thing so do um nurses speak up to vets do nurses speak up to doctors in the medical world and it and it's it's not necessarily surprising but quite you know sad that people don't always speak up if they see something going wrong and so with a near miss you know you, you found that potentially someone has spoken up which is a really great thing and it's a, it's a real key point that you could actually research and understand a little bit more you to speak to Catherine Oxtonby, I think. Yeah, so she we've done some we've done some workshops together actually recently because she does a lot of root cause analysis, which is um, a really great way for understanding error. Uh, and we yeah, so we've been working together a little bit recently. She's fantastic. It's yeah, good. Um, so uh, so with, with regards to your uh, your sort of research, sort of is there particular things that you'd like answering if they are if they are answerable. Yeah, I mean, I think we've, we've probably talked about a couple of them. So I think definitely the social side of, of, of how that impacts work life, I think, is a, is a fascinating one that we didn't quite get to go into in detail in, in my PhD. And it's, you know, it's just it's a kind of an interesting one. I'm not quite sure, you know, what the findings would help us to say. I'm not going to say that everybody needs to be buddies and go down the pub every night because it's just not going to happen. But it's a really interesting way to understand how a team works, I think, that, that we could probably do more with. And then I definitely think that errors, the error side of it is is another one. Um, and just probably, you know, trying to understand where... Know, where students opinions of of the other profession develop from you know you know we 
we get them from year one and, and most of our interprofessional education actually happens a bit later so we'd probably like to do a little bit more earlier on and really understand you know have they got perceptions already from work experience about the other group how have they developed uh, and you know how can we really encourage this really positive working environment between those those two key professions but also the other occupations within within the practice cool um and uh so, so you touched on it as well about the, the difficulties of, of research today, but but I imagine in um, in the field of education specifically, there probably is uh, even more of a lack of funding compared to sort of every, everything else. So, so how how challenging is that, and and what advice would you have for somebody who's actually interested in pursuing a career in, in uh, um, ed- educational research, whether you know, professional medical veterinary yeah whatever. yeah it's it's super tough to be honest because i mean we we kind of find that we fall between the cracks a little bit so we're, we're not so pure education that the pure education lists want to fund us because we're with specific veterinary but we're not so veterinary that veterinary funders want to fund us because we're education uh, and so we, we do find that we, that we do as i say fall through those cracks but there are there are groups so my phd was funded by um, the bloomsbury um, um consortium so it was joint with institute of education and rbc which which really was a nice linking um you know method so we, we literally brought education and veterinary together it couldn't have been more perfect and i think so looking for that kind of collaboration is probably a good idea a, a very sensible idea and, and and in a way, making things relevant to to other groups. So, you know, if I'm looking at a veterinary something, then it's actually making it relevant to medicine because medicine ends up getting a bit more funding than than veterinary necessarily, or sometimes does. So, making your research as a as a relevance to to other groups is probably quite important as well. But it it we must admit it is a struggle. <laughs> and it, is that good in some ways that you're you're not doing sort of postdocs now that you don't have that. Uh, I need to write another grant. I need to work on on something. Is that is that obviously beneficial now? But does that have its own issues with regards to your research? Or as you said, your kind of your research and lecture role kind of mesh together? Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because it's. <laughs> It's less life or death for me personally. So, you know, when I was a, a postdoc, I was literally thinking, if I don't get this grant, then I don't have a job. And that was, you know, that's massive. And indeed, we did apply for a couple of what I thought were fantastically sounding, you know, grants that we didn't get for whatever reason. Uh, you know, and that's a real, that's massive in terms of that's your life. Um, now, it's very much part of your career. So as a lecturer, you're still judged you know on certain things such as publications such as bringing in money so it's very much a part of your progression in your career but it's not so much if I don't get this one specific grant I'm out of a job and and what happens now so the pressure's been taken off but there's still a massive desire to to keep writing grants and getting some money in to do your own um, research I think you know we're I'm really lucky to work with quite a lot of different sort of research students but then you know you're you're working on projects that they're interested in and work with you know sometimes different colleagues on, 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 on projects that they're interested in. But to get your own research, you, you do need to keep pushing forwards with writing grants, which is still tough uh, to find time and, and the funding for. <laughs> and, uh, and so what, what advice would you give to a, uh, a young um, scientist who has, uh, you know, to have a successful career in research and to not necessarily follow your exact footsteps, but what <laughs> advice would you, uh, would you give? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd probably, you know, 
say in some ways do follow some of the footsteps but not all of them so certainly uh, apply for things that you're interested in I think has always been my motto you know you know when I was thinking back to my even going back to A levels it was like choose subjects that you're interested in rather than someone's told you you should be doing for whatever reason and that's kind of the same for apply for research posts that are interesting because it becomes it does take over a, a large chunk of your life you have to be really excited about it so if I think if I wasn't in, excited about my PhD that would have been a tough three years and it turned out instead of course it, I mean, it had its ups and downs but it was an amazing three years so I think you know consider what you're interested in and um, consider what is really important to you and then try and look for positions that enable you to as I said before sort of get your foot in that door because I, I would never have had the opportunities to write the PhD grant if I hadn't have already been here you know that just wouldn't have happened um so yeah try and try and get to know some people you know people always say networking and things like that but it, it definitely it does help uh, and you know if you can find fantastic mentors I've been really lucky with, with people like Sarah Bailey and Stephen May who've just been fantastic in helping to sort of round off your experience so it's not just about collecting the data and analyzing the data it's, it's conceiving the project and writing the project it's, it's kind of everything and I know you can't uh, necessarily answer this, as I said, like what, you know, the benefits of being at the at the RVC because you haven't necessarily um, worked too <laughs> too much elsewhere. But but is is it is there a benefit being a, a smaller institution, or actually is it um, a, a hindrance? Does it make us more more flexible? I mean, for me specifically, there, there's absolutely both. So the the slight hindrance is obviously that if you were part of a, a different university, you'd probably have sort of an education department and, and such. So you'd probably have colleagues that are pure education that, that would be really fun to work with. Um, you know, having said that, we now get opportunities to sort of almost become that person because we are the education department um, within RBC. Uh, and as I said before, RBC for me is just the place to be because of our student groups that we have um, our vet students our nursing students and to be honest we'd really like to do something more with the BSc students as well to bring them in so we're such an interprofessional group of students and staff that it, it's such a perfect place to be for for my researching and in terms of my lectureship role you know we we offer this fantastic suite of veterinary education courses our postgraduate certificate our diploma our masters so we're working with different uh, you know different students from here but from across the globe as well which is fantastic opportunities that that you might not get elsewhere so f- for me personally it's definitely the place to be <laughs> and probably certainly sort of lateral uh, thinking but what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't in this uh, role now <laughs> that i mean that's really interesting um as I said, I really like writing. I think I might have tried my hand at writing books or something, but I'm not sure it would have been a career path, really. It would have just been a, a piece of fun. Um, I really don't know, but I, I kind of think I would have found my way to research of something. Ironically, having not known that research would, would be the thing I wanted to do. Um, you know, if it wasn't veterinary education specifically, I kind of think research of of, of some kind of, you know, associated area of, of veterinary medicine but not being a vet or a nurse would probably be where I would have ended up but it's, it's so hard to tell <laughs> um, and just and just one thing because as Barry says interested uh, about it because you recently were involved in a publication about like women in the, in the profession mm. and obviously the, the veterinary profession is quite um, dominated by women or, ha- or has been um, in the in the last sort of 30 odd, odd years do you, do you is it easy to find mentors and uh, inspiration in, who, who are women in the profession or is, is that 
equality exists, do you think? I mean, I think it's it's definitely starting to, isn't it? So we, we've had the the you know the the turn from more male vet students to more female vet students very much. You know, it's quite obvious now if you go into a lecture sort of thing. Uh, but in the in the sort of the leadership positions, it's it's obviously taken a little bit more time. But but the study that you mentioned was a, a research students project, which was really great. I mean, she was uh, you know a fantastic vet student that was really interested in this and w- and went to speak to um, I can't remember exactly how many, but but a number of women in leadership positions who who had all you know got there from various different ways. You know, like me, not knowing or knowing that that's what they wanted to do, ending up in things, but taking opportunities and taking a bit of a risk and having the right mentor and all of that kind of thing. So I definitely think there are. Um, and at the same time, you know, sort of anyone can be a role model, but I think you, you have to be you know, very willing to be a mentor uh, to actually help that to happen. So I definitely think there are more more and more women in, in leadership positions that, that we can really look, look to, yeah. We, we certainly need more in the profession, don't yeah. we? I think as, a, as the, um, you know, the, the demographics have skewed, exactly. there's still a lot of, of male yeah. leaders in, in, the, yeah. in the profession that's not reflective of the, of the profession as a whole. Yeah. Um, hopefully we'll more on, on that in the, in the future. Yeah. Um, and uh, and is, there, is there any question that you would like uh, answered in a research term in in any field is there any like global questions so not specifically for your <laughs> research but anything that you think that uh, needs to be answered i mean i guess that's a huge one isn't it and, and the, the the stuff that springs to mind is obviously things like you know curing disease or, or stopping you know un- understanding or stopping natural disasters all that kind of you know big big things I, I mean I, I don't find myself necessarily a big thinker so um I think if I was if I was personally thinking about another field then I, I always go back to um you know the idea of kind of my animal behavior stuff my my obsession with cats in some ways and I think there's a lot more of animal behavior and, and certainly species that we we aren't necessarily aware of like I'm I'm very conscious of the fact that you know a lot of profile you know goes on some animal species but but much less on, on others that are also equally interesting or equally important to the you know the biodiversity so I think I'd probably have some kind of question about you know their their behavior their lifestyles you know things like um you know I was saying before sort of to you that I'm interested in small cat species, wild small cat species. You know, a lot of interest is on your, you know, your big prides of lions or whatever. But, you know, I think I'd be quite fascinated in what happens in the lives of a, of a small cat out in the world. But that's not, as I say, not necessarily a, a big hitting question, but one that I'd be interested in. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good to have uh, these specific interests, isn't it? <laughs> um, and uh, maybe uh, finally, Dini, about uh, obviously there's there's lots of um, concern about well-being in, in the profession in general, and uh, and even you know similarly in in researchers as well. Like the huge amount of pressure as we talk about short-term contracts and finances yeah, and not yeah. knowing where you are so so um so what do you if, if you don't mind me asking what do you do to look after your yourself and and have you found it easy to do that or struggle to do that at certain at certain times i mean i guess like like you've you've mentioned there, there was definite times of, of stress and i think sort of that that not knowing where you're going to be in a few months time or a year's time is massive and so having the support system you know whether it was you know me living at home with my mum for those early years or whatever you know that that was super important and now 
you know, nowadays it's kind of a different pressure because being, you know, I, I think I never realised it as a research assistant or a postdoc or a PhD, but being a lecturer <laughs> has its added complications. And, you know, as a, you're always thinking, oh, come on, supervisors, get back to me about my latest thing that I've shown you. And now I'm on the other side and it's like, oh, my gosh, when do I have time to get back to all my wonderful students that I'm trying to trying to help develop? Um, you know, so I think you have to be very conscious of, of maybe not taking that stress with you too much. So I'm probably quite good um, at, at keeping sort of time for myself, you know, in, in the sort of the days. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to come in a bit early and leave a bit late. But, you know, it's one of those things of the weekend is, is kind of my time, I guess. And, you know, I don't I don't like the thought of work-life balance in so much as work is bad, life is good. But I do like very much the thought of, being able to switch off from any stresses that might be happening in your work environment and then you've got life stresses as well but um you know having that mix i think it is really quite important and trying to get as i said uh, as much of a support system around you as you possibly can well thank you so much for your uh, time Jenny. i i always uh, think when i I've spoken to the fabulous researchers that we have here at the RBC and including yourself, they get this sort of inspiration that I think, oh, I'd like to look at that or do that. But it was this, uh, there's only so much time in the, in the exactly. day, isn't there? But, but thank you so much for your time today. Oh, and um, and uh, maybe we'll we'll find out what's what's going on in a, in a few years' time. That'd be quite good because <laughs> I'm sure we'll both be institutionalised and hang around for a lot longer. So we'll um, so we'll wrap it up there. But uh, And thanks for listening. So um, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device and that way you won't even have to worry about missing a podcast if you leave us a five-star review that would be great leave different star reviews for different uh, podcasts that's fine we, we're not too fussed about that so we'll place some show notes on the obviously pages so just type in obviously clinical pod, uh, research podcast sorry into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree so if you have any comments or suggestions for this um, podcast then please get in touch so you can either email dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk or tweet at dombarfield until next time bye-bye